We will be in our series in the Ten Commandments this morning, but I'd like to deviate from protocol just a bit here at the beginning and invite all of you now to take a Bible and to open it and to go with me to Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Believe me, I'm conflicted in my own mind of when is the most appropriate time to do what I'm doing, and I decided I would just do it up front at the beginning, and I'd like to address some of the recent events of this week in our nation and to do it by going to the Bible to just kind of give you a bit of an insight of how I reflect in my own mind and heart on some of these events and how I hope and desire to see the gospel lived out in response to various things that happen Uh, not only in my life, but I believe in all of our lives as the gospel itself compels us. So this is one of the immediate verses that came into my mind on Friday when I saw through reaction on social media just a variety of opinions over news that came down about a Supreme Court decision because as I observed it, there was sort of a whole spectrum of jubilation and joy and frustration and concern and everything in between And so immediately in my mind, this verse came to me. Romans chapter 12, verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. One of the fascinating things for me about this verse is that I think Paul is intentionally putting up these two emotional reactions right next to each other because they often conflict with one another. It's it's hard to feel both of these things at one and the same time. And yet he puts them right next to each other and says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And in the flow of Romans, he doesn't give any explanation of what it is that people are rejoicing in or what it is that people are weeping in. He just says it. But if we didn't start at verse 15 and we started at verse 14, we'll actually see that, yes, what Paul is asking us to do in part is to react in a way that is different than people might expect. Look at verse 14. He says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Well, that's even harder to do than verse 15. Our natural inclination and reaction is to not speak and desire blessing for someone that desires our harm. Right? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian today to to say, yeah, that's, did did he really say that? Did he say that we're supposed to bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them? How could Paul write a letter to a group of people and expect them to be able to do this? Well, it's the same way that we can obey verse 15, which is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It must mean that as Christians... Our source of rejoicing and our source of weeping and even our source of blessing is fundamentally different than those who are not Christians. It's only when our source of rejoicing and our source of weeping and source of blessing is fundamentally different that we could somehow do both at one and the same time. Otherwise, this is just sort of like biblical bipolar disorder, right? Like, how in the world am I supposed to do these things? If I, when I read the verse, put myself as one of the ones rejoicing or one of the ones weeping, all I can do is one of those things. Because that's my reaction. But if I can look at someone and look at a situation and I don't quite identify either with their rejoicing or with their weeping, there's something about me that's sort of removed from that, at least in part, then I can empathize with both of those emotions just as a common human experience. And I can come alongside both. So much in our heart wants to pick between one or the other. But then look at verse 16. He says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So he is saying for every Christian to live in such a way that they would be able to bless their persecutors 
to rejoice with others in their rejoicing and to weep with others in their weeping. And all of that flows from the beginning of chapter 12. If you turn back and look at verses one and two. He says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And then he goes on to give these series of commands. One of the ways we as Christians are to be transformed in the renewal of our minds is to not be conformed to this world. What that means in part is that we don't see in this world any specific representation of our faith through any political party or institution in this world. That we belong, as Jesus said, and we'll look at at the end of the sermon, to a kingdom that is not of this world. And we're still here, and we're participants in this world, And so we're active and we work towards legislation that benefits all people. We want to see justice in our courts to benefit all of our citizens. We work towards all of these things. But as Christians, our most fundamental and primary identity is that we are, in fact, Christians. That we belong to Jesus. That he loved us enough to rescue us and to redeem us. And that our primary message to the world is that we try to live peaceably with everyone so that we can get them to listen to us and to hear us when we try to tell them about Jesus. Because that is the most fundamental choice that every one of us has to make. That Jesus who came lived his life and told everyone that would listen to him that there is an end to their life And that they will either, by faith in him, die in hope and know what it's like to have an eternal relationship with God forever. Or they will hear him and reject him. And the injustices of this world, the pain and the suffering of this world upon death will become permanent forever. And so Jesus says to anyone who would listen to him, I have come to give you life. I have come to give you joy. I have come to give you peace. That the biggest problem in this world is not the laws of this world or the things going on in this world, but it is a broken relationship that we all have with him, with the God who made us. And that he's calling people into a restored relationship with him. Those of us who've accepted that, who have believed that, now belong to a new family, now get to celebrate with him, and now in some way are able to actually bless anyone who might desire our harm and are able to rejoice with other people even when we don't share in their cause of rejoicing. We're able to weep with people even when we don't share in their cause of weeping. But we try, as citizens in this world, not conform to it, to live peaceably with all so that as many people as possible would consider Jesus, who he is, what he said, and what he did. That's what the gospel is. As I heard someone say, when Jesus rose from the grave and there was that empty tomb, he didn't make it empty so that you and I could throw anyone else in it. He didn't. He didn't make the tomb empty so that you or I could then think that it's our responsibility to put anyone else in there. He told us to go and to spread the message that the tomb is empty. That the relationship that all of us have that is broken with our creator can be restored through him. That's what we've sung about. That's what we've celebrated. And for me as a Christian, the news of any change of laws or any issues in our society, I have opinions about. And I can give commentary on. And we're going to as we preach through the Ten Commandments. We we could not be in a more appropriate place in the Bible than going through the Ten Commandments right now. 
And today, what does it mean to honor your father and mother? Tomorrow, or next Sunday, what does it mean to take seriously to not commit adultery? And how do we value marriage? And how do we understand marriage? So we're going to go through all of those topics because they're in the Bible and because we believe there's wisdom in the Bible for all of us in those issues. But one of the dangers is always that when we talk about these things, that people would mishear us to think, so if I do all of those things that they're telling me I have to do, maybe then I could become a Christian. And that would be to mishear us. That anything that we call sin or anything that we disagree with or would vote differently with another person on is not our way of saying how you or I have a restored relationship with God. It isn't. Our relationship with God can only be restored through Jesus Christ himself. And as Christians, we desire to live out in such a way in whatever society we're in that we can live peaceably with all people. And we want the freedom to be able to share that message. The response that troubled me the most as a Christian was the amount of fear I heard expressed by Christians. Fear is so unbecoming of a Christian. The kingdom of God is alive and well today in every single society. It's illegal in China. And yet the church is alive and well there. It is being persecuted to such an extent that it's hard to even read the full news story in the Middle East right now. But the church is alive and well. And the church is alive and well in Western nations whose laws are continuing to drift away from a foundation rooted in Scripture. But Christ still reigns over his church. He's still active and working and it's in this very context as Paul is writing these words that he's writing them to the Romans to people living in Rome where there's an emperor in Rome who is basically thinks of himself as God and if your Bibles are still open there look at verse 13 in chapter 13 verse 1 after Paul has said all of that he says let everyone be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And we don't have time to unpack all of that. But here's Paul telling a bunch of Christians who live in a city that doesn't reflect their worldview, their laws, their perspective. And he says, you have an amazing opportunity in your day to shine the light of the gospel. To live in such a way that people would look at how you respond to things and how you act and how you treat people and by how you do that they will desire to know more about the God that you serve. They'll desire to know more about the hope that you have. That the things that they get really excited about, you don't necessarily get as excited about, but yet the things that bring them down don't quite get you down. You seem to have in your faith in God this steadfastness that endures, that continues, that doesn't just shift every single moment with whatever story comes down the pike. That kind of consistency in our faith in Christ that lives and trusts in him alone is what will make people wonder what it is that we believe. And then in verse 21, the concluding verse of chapter 12, this great statement to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. That's our calling as Christians. To not do anything different than what we've always been asked to do because of the truth of who God is, to love people well, to desire to do good to them, when we're misunderstood, to try to clarify ourselves, but to never let go of the primary message of what is at stake for each and every person that lives, that they will spend eternity somewhere. And we want and desire for them to be restored to their maker. Because we can't effectively love someone and share the gospel with them if we're angry at them and just want them away from us. To really love the world and therefore to desire its ultimate good, we have to be formed by Christ with the type of character that Christ desires to instill in us so that we can do that. 
And so that is my prayer for myself as an individual, but for all of us as Christians, not just because it's a good idea, but I do believe it's what the gospel compels us to. To bless those who persecute you. To bless and not curse them. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep and to live honorably in the sight of all. Now go to Exodus chapter 20 with me. As we think through what it means to honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 12, I basically read it as you were turning to it. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. One verse. Again, some of you will hope that that means this is really, really brief, but we'll, we'll find out if it is or not. We've described this whole series as the Ten Commandments as trying to look at it as what the commandments show us as a lens, as a mirror, and as a window. So if you're someone like me who needs glasses to see, one of the most frustrating experiences that you deal with every day that at some point in your day you have to find your glasses. And that's really frustrating because, as I said, if I could find my glasses without the help of my glasses, I wouldn't need glasses, right? So as I'm looking for them, I'm squinting as hard as I can to see where they might be, and the very thing I need is what would help me see better. So when we come to the Bible, we we try to look in it and we try to understand what it's saying, but there's also a sense in which we come to the Bible to help us see the world and to help us make sense and interpret what's going on. Why do things work this way? Why do people disagree so much? Why are there different opinions and frustrations and how different ways that people react to it. The Bible actually tells us a profound amount about why that is, about why the world is the way it is. And so we want to look at the world through the lens of these commandments. And then once our eyes are working, then we look into a mirror. And so every morning, that's my routine. I get my glasses on and then I look in a mirror. Because if I'm looking in a mirror without them, it's not a whole lot that's going to happen that will be productive. I'll miss something. So I put them on so that I can see clearly what I look like. But then also as I wear these, I look out into the world through the window of my car or the window of my house and I see things through it. And that's what we want to do with each of these commandments. And so we're on now the fifth commandment. We're going to go through all ten. We're going to look at them one week at a time. But we come to them in part because even as they were given in the Old Testament, There was something different about these ten than all the other laws that were given. So that it actually says that God, with his own finger, wrote in stone these ten. There's a lot more laws that were given, but that these ten were always considered foundational, important. For for us to make sense of the other ones, these are the ones that we have to understand first. Just like you, if you want something to be read many, many years from now, you would put it in stone. We mark significant occasions by engraving things in stone, whether it's acknowledging someone's retirement from a company and 30 years of service and someone makes them a plaque or a trophy is made for a kid's soccer contest and they go get a trophy and they carve it in stone. When we want something remembered for a long period of time, we put it in something that lasts. Paper, it's hard to preserve. Things we say to each other, It's hard to remember sometimes. What we take the time to engrave in stone gives a signal to anyone who would read it that this is meant to be read for a long, long time. And God did that with these Ten Commandments so that eventually when um, the Ark of the Covenant was established, the tablets that had these commandments on them was placed inside of them and then they were kept in the holiest of holy places in the temple. And all of that in the worship of Israel was symbolic that these are significant. These are foundational to everything else. So when we come to honor your father and your mother that your days may be long, we're asking ourselves, what would be true of the world if we looked at it from this perspective? So from this lens, one of the things that we see is that in the, according to the Bible, authority, responsibility, and initiative are necessities. Authority, responsibility, and initiative are necessities for life. 
We do live in an environment in a day that is always suspicious of authority and doesn't like it when authorities tell us something to do. But from a biblical worldview, authority is necessary. It's how life functions. God made the world. He initiated its creation, and he made it. And when he made us as human beings, he then told us to take dominion over what he made, which is to assume authority, to go about using your mind and your abilities to make things happen. That if you look out into a, a, just a, a random collect, a forest of trees, if that tree is going to become a garden that produces fruit or a farm that provides vegetables for people, You have to exercise authority over it. You have to take dominion and make the space that's necessary and order it in such a way that things come from it. If there's going to be organization amongst families and groups of people that eventually develop cities, someone has to take authority. And as much as we try hard to reject authority, we ultimately can never escape it. For every one of us, in whatever situation we're in, someone's in charge and someone's responsible. The company you work for could not function if someone was not in charge. If someone did not say, this is when we're open and this is when we're closed and this is how many hours we're going to work. And if you're a a part of even a nonprofit organization, for someone who's given the responsibility to make decisions, then usually there's a group of people that sit on a board to oversee that person's authority and say, are you doing what we've asked you to do well? Are you paying attention to the needs of people? But there has to be authority. If you just imagine walking into a classroom, let's say it's a third grade classroom, and the teacher hasn't been in there for 30 minutes, what comes to your mind? A good situation or a bad situation? Someone in the class will actually assume authority. And it's usually not the nicest person. It's usually the biggest person. And they'll be in charge now. And it's not a healthy situation for anyone in it when there is not an authority present. And so authority is a good thing. It's something that God possesses in his uniqueness as the creator over everything, but then it's something that he's given to us as a responsibility. And in part, because the way that our own lives have been designed is that for every one of us here, we began as a single cell that then multiplied by billions of times. And so what that means is from the earliest stages of our own development as human beings, we were completely dependent upon someone else completely dependent upon someone else. Our life grew in the womb of another person. And every bit of nutrients, every bit of growth and cells that we needed came from another person. And then even when we entered into this world, we were still, for a significant period of time, completely dependent upon someone else. We, we could not have fed ourselves. We could not have clothed ourselves. And that's true of all of us. That because we don't come into this world as adults and that we go from infancy to adulthood, we are for the majority of our life dependent upon other people for life. And that dependence is intentional. And there's an authority that is therefore given and a responsibility for those who have authority to act in a certain way on behalf of those who cannot act for themselves. When we look at the world through this lens and it says to honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land, it is just acknowledging that the way the world works is that someone has to take responsibility for us or we wouldn't be here. Somebody has to love us and care for us and nurture us and feed us or we would not exist. Our life is dependent upon others. And so it would be good if we honor those who took the responsibility and the initiative with the authority they had to keep us alive, to love us, to value us, to care for us because we needed them. We were entirely dependent upon them. Authority in and of itself, is a good thing. Those who have authority and accept the responsibility that comes with it and then take the initiative to do what they can do are acting in accord with the way that God has created us. 
Another thing when we look through this lens, though, is that it says to honor your father and your mother that your days would be long in the land. This is different in ancient Near Eastern culture. For other groups other than Israel, they had many different perspectives about women. Sometimes they idolized them and made gods out of them, but other times they mostly just regarded them as property. And in this commandment where it says to honor your father and your mother, it says that, yes, there are fathers and mothers. They're different by design, but they're equal in value. And you are responsible to honor both of them. Different by design, but equal in value. Protected by God. Fully, individually made in his image. And that's how the creation story goes. That God made Adam and Eve. He made man and woman. And when he made them, he said, let us make them in our image. That there is an intentional complementarity between men and women. And that there is something about how they relate to each other together that says something about the world and something about the God who made them. That when God looked on Adam alone, he said that was not good, and so he made a helper fit for him, and that together, in how they relate to one another, we learn something about God and something about ourselves. That he has made both sexes fully human, independent personalities, and yet interdependent upon one another. Just like as children, we're dependent upon parents, in our society and for the healthy functioning of our own souls is where men and women are valued equally and honored and given dignity equally in their place in the world. That's how the Bible views what God has created. Sin has corrupted that in all kinds of ways, but we're still just looking at the lens here. And one of the other things that we see when we come to this commandment about honoring your father and mother is related to wisdom, experience, and innovation. If we really honor fathers and mothers, part of what that means is that we value wisdom. And wisdom is experience accumulated over time. Our culture in day and age often puts a primary value on our feelings, not on truth. And on what we're experiencing in the moment as opposed to what's been experienced over a prolonged period of time. If we value wisdom, then we would desire more often than not to hear the perspective of someone older than us. To say, you know, you were probably a teenager once. What was it like for you? (laughs) Uh, you've experienced a lot of changes in the world. You've experienced uh, court decisions going all kinds of different ways. So how how did you, what was that like 50 years ago when this happened or, or that happened? But in our society, the older you get, the less we want you on TV, right? The worst thing you could do is get older if you want to be famous. Because for you to be marketable, for you to sell, for you to attract people, what we mostly prioritize is what is new, what is fresh, and what people under the age of 25 will desire to see. That's what sells. And so in in one of the most complete contradictions in the last month and a half, when someone who was not comfortable identifying as a man and chose to identify as a woman then went on a magazine cover, the way the picture had to be taken was that his arms had to be put around behind his back because it is true that arms and hands are one of the things that reveal your age more than anything. What's wrong with getting older? In our society, what, why do we devalue that? But we do. I mean, if you were just to take a cultural difference between Asian cultures and Western cultures, you would say, irrespective of what they believe, they value their elderly a lot more than we do. They absolutely do. In how they build their houses and how they care for their people, they value their elderly and they value wisdom more than we do. And that's, that's part of the debate in our own day and age as we have court decisions being made, is one of the things I just encourage you to do is it's a, it's a PDF document that you can download yourself, um, the Supreme Court decision from Friday on the 
legality of same-sex marriage. It, it's 100 pages, but because the margins are like three inches all the way around, and then there's at least 20 pages of footnotes, so that if you just printed it and read it, you're reading like 35 pages of material. And I would really, really encourage you to just read it for yourself. You don't need anyone else to tell you what it says. There's a little bit of legal jargon in it, but you really could just read it and understand it for yourself. And it would be a great investment of your time to do so. But one of the, because the, the judges are having debates themselves. And it's as sophisticated mudslinging as anything you'll ever read. I mean, they don't use any inappropriate words, but they're having an all out fight in writing. Read it. It'll feel like you're back in school, but you won't, you won't die from it. I promise. You, you'll be okay if you just take the time to read it. But one of the issues from the dissenting, uh, one of the dissenting judges, Scalia, was, he said, I actually don't, I don't care what our nation decides on this issue. And so if the nation decides that they want to define marriage this way or that way, it doesn't matter to me. What I want to preserve is how decisions are made in this country. So that up to this point, every state that has decided to legalize same-sex marriage has done so by also taking into account the perspectives and opinions of everyone in the state. And that by doing that, the moment certain things were made legal, there were also protections and provisions made for those who did not share that same perspective. And so that through the legislative process, people with a variety of opinions were all able to have a voice and then those voices were represented in what became law. When a decision is made like it's done by the courts, part of what it's doing is rejecting the wisdom of how our government is structured so that now it will literally take 20 to 30 years of more court cases to really figure out what is legal. It's the same thing that happened with abortion law. That because it became legal, not by a legislative process of the states, but because it was a decision in a court, there has now been 20 to 30 years of additional legislation needing to be made to figure out what actually and specifically is legal or not and what rights states have or not, okay? So whatever you think on the issue, the debate going on between them was not your ultimate conclusion, but do we see wisdom in the process that was set up and that we would desire to follow that process for the good of all people so that everybody from whatever perspective and, and, and viewpoint they have would have an opportunity to have a legitimate discussion and debate about it, as opposed to shutting down that debate in the way that it was done. But we live in a culture that does not usually value and prioritize the wisdom of other generations. The way history is usually taught is that people older than you are dumber than you. That's how it's usually presented. That's how a lot of people approach the Bible. They see creativity in the Bible, they see diversity in the writing, and they just assume, well, that had to be like four different authors, because no one person could do that. And part of the assumption that they're making is that we're now a lot smarter than they were back then. And so Luke couldn't just be a creative storyteller who actually has a way of putting things together beautifully, or Moses, or whoever it is. And so we, we live in a generation in our day and age where we always want to start the story with us and with our experiences. I mean, think about it. When you turn in a resume for a job, where do you start? Your experience, your education, your qualifications. That's who you are. It'd be totally inappropriate if you said, well, I grew up in this home. My dad was kind of like this. My mom was kind of like this. My grandparents were kind of like this. You'd be like, what? And I had the opportunity, just a little over a year ago, um, some visitors were here from India, and they were attending various things in the community, And whenever they were asked to come in front of a people and explain who they were, they always started by telling you about their parents. I just thought, wow, that's totally different. That's where they would start. They'd go back and say, you can't understand my education, my experience, my talents, my whatever, apart from understanding a bit about who I am and where I've come from. And as a society, we encourage ourselves mostly to think about ourselves as beginning from ourselves. And that's not where we begin. All of us came from somewhere. And for good or bad, we're affected by other people and we're affected by other choices. 
And the most popular mantra in our day and age is that you can just be whatever you want to be and it doesn't matter where you come from. There's partial truth in that. But there's just as much truth that says no matter what you do, you're affected by someone. In ways you don't even know it, you are affected by decisions that were made before you or I were even born. And that's why we need to honor fathers and mothers. Because the authority they have, the responsibility, the initiative, part of what that means is that if a father or a mother does not take responsibility, does not assume authority, does not take the initiative, there are a profound amount of consequences to that. A mother and a father does not have to abuse a child to harm a child. They simply have to neglect a child to harm a child. Right? A mother and a father looking at someone that is dependent upon them does not have to abuse them to harm them. They simply have to neglect them. And that's true of all of us. That we are affected by other things that happened. Other decisions that were made before we had the capacity to make decisions. And so we want to honor father and mothers. We want to give them the tools they need because the responsibility they have is so profound and it has consequences that outlast them. The immediate context of this command, the people of Israel, now free from slavery, had had a master in Pharaoh who didn't give a rip about their families. And he had no problem dividing them up. He looked at all of them as labor. And when they started to grow and he started to be concerned about what they might do to them, the Pharaoh ordered that the boys born would be executed. That's how much he didn't care about their families. That's how much he didn't care about fatherhood and motherhood. And so in protest to that, the Hebrew midwives in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Exodus say, we're not doing that. We're not listening to you as our primary authority. We value life. We think it's sacred. And we honor mothers and fathers more than you. There's an implication in honoring fathers and mothers that we would then also honor the government. But parenthood precedes government. Any society you go to, any tribe that you find somewhere in the middle of the Amazon still has some structure to it and has some form of parenthood because it does not depend upon any governmental structure. Governments that come from the collection of parents function healthily. Governments that try to be parents usually don't. Governments that come about as the collective opinion of parents usually function healthily. Governments who assume that their role is parent usually don't. And so all of this wisdom here to then say to the people of Israel, as you're building a new society, I don't want another Pharaoh. I don't want another Pharaoh who destroys homes and families, and separates children from their parents. That's not what I want. In your freedom, in this new nation, this nation will be a shining light to all of the communities around it if, in this nation, it honors its mothers and its fathers, it gives them the tools that they need to do their job well, and it values the wisdom of others and of generations gone before Not that it's not open to experience and not that it's not open to innovation, but it considers everything in light of those previous generations. And that, again, is the debate for so many of us in our day and age. Will we allow the dead to have a say? Will 2,000 years of Christian history all the way up until this point inform our perspective and our opinion on what we believe and what we hold true and what we value and where we come down on certain issues, in keeping with that? Or are we part of a generation that says, no, 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 none of them knew what we know. We know better. We know best. Now go with me to the book of Daniel chapter 9 and try to bring this to a close. Soon. Probably not very soon. Let me see what time we're at.
Daniel offers this prayer. Because if what I just said is true, that we have authority, responsibility, and the need to take initiative, and that we can cause harm by neglect just as much as we can by abuse, most of us, in hearing that, would acknowledge we don't always assume the authority that we should. We don't always take the responsibility that we should. And we don't always have the inclination and the initiative to act like we should. So when we put on these glasses and we see the world through these lens, we realize that we don't do this all the time. And here's Daniel, and he offers a prayer. So beginning in verse 3 with me, this is on page 746. He says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to all Israel, to those near and far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Then jump over to verse 18. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So in this prayer, Daniel acknowledges that everything that his generation is now dealing with is in part because of the sin and the rebelliousness of the generation before. And he acknowledges that, the sin of his fathers. And that's a consistent theme all the way throughout the Old Testament. The very people that were given the Ten Commandments, eventually God said that that entire generation would not be allowed to enter into the Promised Land because they weren't willing to trust him. So it happened to the mothers and fathers of Israel, that they struggled to believe in God. They struggled to accept his promises that they would give them the land. And because of that, they were not allowed in. And that's a consistent theme all the way throughout. In the Genesis account of Adam and Eve, their first parents, they were the ones to fall before any kids were involved. Because you know what they would have done otherwise. They would have blamed their kids. That's what you do. That's what I do. Any chance I get, I can blame them for something. But it happened before them that our first fathers fell. Our first father and mother sinned. In all of human history, we have this tension of authority is needed, responsibility is needed, initiative is needed, but there's not a single authority in this world that lives up to what it should do perfectly. And the failures that I make will affect generations after me. They will affect my children and others. The things that I know I should do and I don't do, all of that reality is true. And when we look into the mirror and say that we were made to act a certain way and to behave a certain way, we do that. For some people, having children is the most transformational thing where they realize that they really don't have it all together. It's the most humbling experience. When they see young eyes looking up at them saying, show me how to live, for most people, in all honesty, they'll look at that and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe anyone let me be a parent. Why, why am I responsible for any other person? I, I'm still figuring this out. I don't know what I'm doing half the time. Who, or any kid looking at a teacher, any kid looking at an aunt or uncle, that you just, you have this sense, please don't just look at me and do what I do. This is one of the sad realities in our world as it relates to this dynamic. This is from what to expect when you're expecting. I read this and it broke my heart as I was trying to prepare for being a father. 
Protecting her baby from harm is every expectant mother's most basic instinct. But sadly, some women can't even protect themselves during pregnancy. That's because they're victims of domestic violence. Domestic violence can strike at any time, but it's especially common during pregnancy. While having a baby brings out a new or renewed tenderness in many relationships, it rocks others, sometimes triggering unexpectedly negative emotions in a woman's partner, from anger to jealousy to the feeling of being trapped, particularly if the pregnancy wasn't planned. In some cases, unfortunately, those emotions play out in the form of violence against both the mother and her unborn baby. Surprisingly, domestic violence is the leading cause of death among pregnant women, killing more often than pregnancy complications or car crashes. Even without the homicides, the statistics are just as alarming. Nearly 20% of women experience violence at the hands of their partners during pregnancy. This means statistically that pregnant women are twice as likely to experience physical abuse during their nine months than to experience a preterm birth. Domestic abuse among pregnant women carries more than just immediate risk of injury to the mother-to-be and her baby. Being battered during pregnancy can lead to numerous negative health consequences for the mom-to-be, including poor nutrition, poor prenatal care, substance abuse, and so on. Its effects on the pregnancy can also include stillbirth or miscarriage, preterm labor, premature rupture of the membranes, or low birth weight. And once a baby is born into a physically abusive household, he or she can easily become a victim of direct violence as well. Abused women come from all backgrounds, socioeconomic areas, every age, every race, ethnicity, every educational level. And then it gives services that are available that if you're a victim of this, that you can contact. There's a profound reality in our world that some people thinking about the opportunity to be a father is the very thing that makes them realize they're not equipped to do it. And instead of running to God for help, to say, show me how to be a father that I should be, and to love my, the mother of my children like I should, they allow anger and jealousy and violence to rage within them. It's horrible. And in a room like this, there are so many of us that have had different experiences along these lines that we had different mothers and fathers and we had different experiences. But we now go to the window because Jesus says something to each and to every one of us. And so go to John chapter 18. This is the last place we're going. We'll go, to, we'll go to chapter 19. Verse 25, this is on page 905. Jesus is hanging on the cross, a victim of injustice, a victim of abuse, a victim of sin, And it says in verse 25, But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. And after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And then go to the 30th verse of chapter 20. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in his book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here is Jesus on the cross offering his life for everyone who's experienced the brokenness of this world, who's experienced the abuse of authority, the neglect of responsibility, the lack of initiative on other people. Here he is on the cross providing a way of hope for everyone who looks into the mirror and knows that they are not as they should be. And he actually still, in his pain on the cross, looks down at his earthly mother and he honors her in a very practical way. 
And he says to one of his disciples, I'm not going to be here to honor my mother in the way that I have been. You take her under your wing and you honor her. And that disciple listened to him. And then he cries out that it is finished. That his offering of his own life as a ransom for our sins was completed. So that every one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what our background is, no matter what our experiences, could find life in his name. That's the promise of the gospel. That when we look through the world, Jesus, who had all authority, did not abuse it. He did not forsake the responsibility he had. He took the initiative. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And he offered himself for you and for me. That's what we see when we look at this commandment. Through a window, there's Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we come to you knowing that you are our Father, that we can come to you and that we can cling to you in each and every situation. Father, we need your grace, especially this morning, as I have said a a multitude of words, but we need you to narrow them down. We need you to, through your spirit, to impress in each individual heart what needs to be heard the most. Father, but we, we desire that everything that we do would ultimately honor you as our Father, You is the one who have given us life and you is the one who have sent your son for us to be restored in fellowship to you. We pray that you would help us to then live in a way that is peaceable with as many people as possible, that we would live honorably in the sight of all so that we would never lose the opportunity to tell them about this great hope. We aren't sufficient for these things. We are sinful and poor and needy but you have given us so much blessing, so much grace, so much mercy. And as we sing about these blessings now, we pray that you would pour out even more blessings upon us. In your son's name, amen.